Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. I'm Michael Finan, Marketing Assistant with Harper Academic. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Laura Kipnis. Laura Kipnis is a highly regarded feminist and professor of film at Northwestern University. Her provocative new book, Unwanted Advances, dives into the hidden world of Title IX, a world of closed-door hearings, biased investigations, and undue process. The book is inspired in large part by Laura's own accusation and subsequent investigation under Title IX, which she'll recount more fully in just a few moments. This isn't just the 21st century version of a witch hunt, Laura argues. These new norms also have an adverse effect on students, professors, and feminism itself. So we have on the phone right now, Laura Kipnis, author of Unwanted Advances. And Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, sure. I'm happy to. All right. So uh, before we dive into everything, um, could you give us a brief outline of your personal encounters with Title IX on campus, just to kind of give all this some context? Well, it's a curious story because I myself, a feminist film professor, was brought up on Title IX complaints for writing an essay. Uh, It was an essay called Sexual Paranoia uh, Comes to Camp. Sexual Paranoia Strikes Academe. That was the title, and it was in the Chronicle of Higher Education. And first, some students staged a protest march on campus against the essay, which is fine. But uh, then some other students pressed Title IX complaints for claiming that I was retaliating uh, and that I was creating a hostile environment. I had written a few paragraphs about the case of a professor on our campus who'd been uh, brought up on sexual misconduct charges. So, you know, that thrust me into this world that I knew nothing about of Title IX hearings and these kind of secret tribunals that are going on on campuses all over the country. Okay. Um, And so you describe yourself as a feminist. Um, And so often these critiques of, I guess you'd call them sensitivity politics on campus, um, they often come from the right politically. Um, So would you say that your critiques of this come from the left? They absolutely do. I'm a left-wing feminist. And that's one of the things that I've been trying to sort through myself in the current political configurations. I mean, I say in the book, I just think the left-right distinctions don't hold up anymore on campus because you've got conservatives acting like liberals and pressing the free speech issues, and you've got the so-called leftists or student activists acting like authoritarians and trying to shut down speech, and also policing sexuality in ways that I I think are very new or, or attempting to, and making alliances with campus administrators to like increase the amount of regulation over sex on campus. So I think the politics of all this is just, is almost incoherent. Mm-hmm. One, um, one interesting thing, kind of jumping off of that, you say in the book, is that new campus codes uh, regarding Title IX and all of that are producing rather than preventing non-consensual sex. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Well, one of the issues is that, you know, there are these claims that campuses are rape cultures, and that's kind of taken for granted. There are a lot of statistics battered around about one in five or one in four students 
uh, so mostly female students are subjected to, to sexual assault. What no one really looks at is that the definition of sexual assault is expanding uh, to an incredible degree so that drunken sex or sex where somebody changes his or her mind later about whether it was or wasn't consensual, um, even things like unwelcome eye contact or jokes made in a bar off campus, all of these things are being charged under Title IX regulations or hostile environment regulations. So you have this vast increase in the numbers of things you know that are, are called sexual assault or sexual harassment or, or misconduct, and you know being turned over to, to campus officials to adjudicate. So the statistics are incredibly um, I don't know all over the place because nobody knows even how assault or, or sexual misconduct is defined, and it's all being expanded behind closed doors. There's just no public discussion about this. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain, I guess, haziness when considering whether these college students um, can adjudicate these matters themselves, whether they're adults. Um, legally, of course, in the eyes of the law, they are adults, but at the same time, they're under the drinking age. Many of them are living away from home at the first time, but they're also heavily regulated on campus. Sexually, do you think these college students are adults? <laughs> you know, it's such an incoherent situation because you've got, on the one hand, you know, what everybody knows is this thriving hookup culture and all of this sexual permissiveness and licentiousness, and the students are all very knowledgeable about sex. I sort of joke my, my students are all talk very knowingly about anal and, you know, very funnily about dorm cest. So they're all these sexual libertines. Then on the other hand, you've got this sort of aura of sexual harm and sexual threat and this idea that sex is, is injurious and can traumatize you for life. So there's, I think, a lot of incoherence and contradictoriness. And, you know, of course, college has always been this place for experimentation, you know, sexual experimentation, you know, with experiments with freedom, with alcohol, uh, that kind of thing. But, um, you know, I think the students, you know, a lot of them, particularly at the more elite schools, have, have led fairly sheltered lives. And so you've got all this stuff kind of, you know, coming together on, on campus. So part of the problem is the administrators, I think, are treating the students as if they're children and um, stepping in and trying to adjudicate matters that I think, you know, instead we should be uh, educating students on how to deal with the realities of, you know, what is in fact adult life relationships, breakups, um, disputes over what exactly happened, you know, on this or that drunken evening. So it's, you know, it's not as though I want anybody to be soft on assault, obviously, um, but I think students themselves in many cases are asking administrators to, to treat them like children. Mm -hmm. So how does this um, affect their perceptions of their own sexual lives? I think that something has really shifted in the sexual culture on campus over the last, you know, decade, let's say. In, and I think that sex is just increasingly seen as something potentially harmful or injurious in, in ways that, that seem different. I, I think this concept of trauma, which has been, you know, big in, you know, fem feminism and, and cultural studies, 
has started to color the way sex is is seen. You know, we've got this term survivors applied not just to people who have been raped, but also to people who've just had bad dating experiences. I mean, I've had my own students tell me that they've gone through a bad breakup and now have PTSD and and have been told by psychologists that they have PTSD, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so there's this new vocabulary of trauma, which I, I don't actually think helps uh, students negotiate their own psychologies and, and personal lives. Mm. One, um, one interesting thing that I noted in, um, in the cases you outlined in the book um, is that in all these scenarios, uh, the man's power is very much a given, um, and that, especially in um, the specific Hartley case you talk about, not only is it assumed that the man must be ill-intentioned, but it's assumed that any even romantic overtures at all must be manipulative in nature. Yeah, this was a case between a graduate student and a professor, not her own professor, but they were in the same department, uh, that was clearly consensual. And I know this because I read through about 2,000 text messages between the two of them, and the woman later changed her mind a couple of years later and said this whole relationship had been not consensual because he had institutional power and she didn't. And I pointed out because, you know, I've read all this uh, correspondence between them, but that she really was the one who had more power in the relationship. He, I think, was more in love with her, very much deferred to her. So there are different kinds of power than only, you know, male power or institutional power. You know, there's the power of who loves who most, and there's the power of youth and attractiveness. And I think a lot of that is overlooked uh, when these things get discussed, uh, you know, in, by feminists. Uh, and, you know, of course, I say I am myself a feminist, or these things get regulated on, on campus. Mm-hmm. So to an extent, there's always going to be some sort of power imbalance. Well, you know, I wrote about the case of a freshman student who was kicked out of school because he'd uh, asked for a blowjob from his girlfriend. She was a year older, and the ruling was that because he'd asked more than once, and at first she said no and then said yes, that he had uh, applied emotional coercion to the situation. So I can't help think that in these rulings there's this, you know, inherent or implicit gender bias where the guy is looked at as the more powerful person, even though I spoke to this this student. I mean, this was not the most sexually confident person in the world, and the girlfriend was a year older. They'd been in a relationship with each other. So the ways these rulings are being made and the assumptions, you know, about power, about gender, about male power, uh, you know, in this case, the ruling was effectively that this uh, guy had emotional I don't know, power in, in ways that this woman didn't. So that's something that really has to be talked about. Who, who's making these decisions? Mm-hmm. Um, I want to jump to something. Uh, there was an article I read recently that mentioned the book um, in Book Forum. And in this article, Charlotte Shane says that uh, it's not easy to acknowledge that a few women have made false accusations without appearing to imply that the rest should be disbelieved. So for you, where would you say the line is between victim blaming and forcing women to take accountability? Because it is a very delicate issue. It's a very delicate issue, and um, 
you know, made even more delicate by how afraid people are to bring up the issue. So I just think we have to have more conversations about what exactly is happening and, you know, conversations about the gray areas, partly because I think that's educational. And rather than having these rulings behind closed doors about, you know, what was what was or wasn't, you know, consensual or what was right or what was wrong, um, I think that discussing it openly is going to help people, particularly young women, figure these things out because they have to be able to, like in real time, make decisions and act assertively to, um, you know, not be in situations that they don't want to be in and not do stuff that they don't want to do. And it's just simply the fact that there is a lot of unwanted sex that goes on. And I think there should be less unwanted sex. And I think the only way that that's going to happen is through education. It's not through regulation. Going off of that, um, that exactly that in terms of women, uh, but you also talk about the book in terms of men, um, the offenders. There's mm-hmm. generally this emphasis in Title IX for punishment over education. Yeah, and, um, you know, there is this increasingly regulatory atmosphere on campus. You know, some people talk about this politically in terms of, you know, neoliberalism, where you've got this focus on on policing. You know, this is something we've seen off campus and on, a focus on policing and the diverting of resources toward policing uh, and away from education. Um, you know, the increase of, like, bureaucracies. And, you know, what, part of what's happened on campus is because of Title IX, you have this vast increase in the infrastructure devoted to policing and enforcing Title IX. And so it's in these people's interests. I mean, maybe this sounds a bit cynical, but it's in the interests of the people in these positions to find more and more misconduct to adjudicate because... Um, it increases their budgets, it increases their staff. You know, there is, uh, it's, it's often said in sociology that the mission of bureaucracies is to, you know, grow the bureaucracy, and I think we're seeing that in this area. Mm-hmm. There, was, um, there was a statement in your, in your book that stuck with me. I believe it was really early on. You say that rape culture has become the campus equivalent of 9-11, which is definitely a very bold statement. Could you, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, it kind of follows from what I was saying, um, you know, along the neoliberal line, that there's a state of emergency. You know, we saw that with, you know, not to be too glib with the uh, analogies, but, you know, we saw, like, say, a rush to war on false information in the last Iraq war, um, the WMD and, and all of that. And I think that, you know, similarly on campus, there's this rush to judgment in the name of security and in the name of, you know, protecting students. There's a lot of false information being thrown a lot around, a lot of false and contested data being asserted as, you know, the truth of the situation. And in effect, it's a similar kind of state of emergency as, you know, the um, security state that we're living through off campus and a kind of state of heightened paranoia and and terror. And, you know, which, as we've seen off campus, leads to just a vast increase of, of regulation, but with no real payoff in, in safety. Mm-hmm. Jumping, um, jumping back to politics for a second, uh, at some point in the book you say 
that when you were in college, uh, Watergate was very much a landmark in that it shifted, shifted students' attitudes toward this sort of down-with-the-administration mentality, uh, which we're not seeing as much today, um, and that these students are very willing and eager to uh, you know, accept these Title IX regulations. Um, do you think the current Trump administration, the way that's going, could sort of bring us back to that mentality that you talk about? That's an interesting question, and um, I've been thinking that regardless of what happens at the top, like in the Department of Education or the Office for Civil Rights, which is the entity that that enforces Title IX, that all this stuff on campus probably isn't going to change much because you've got this this vast infrastructure. And also the, the thing that's also interesting on campus is, you know, that's different from my day, is that you've got students allying with the administrators against the professors. So in that triangle, it's the professoriate, and you know, I speak as, as one of this tribe, who are uh, being sort of double teamed you know, by, by students and administrators. And so the, I think power, including intellectual power and intellectual freedom and academic freedom of, of the professors is shrinking as we come under kind of policing and regulation by administrators kind of in league with um, student activists. I mean, I hope that doesn't sound paranoid in its <laughs> own right, but I mean, I think you can you actually see it happening. I mean, there's, as I said, this vast increase in the in, in administration and the power that they're seizing uh, to enact regulation, to set the tenor of the place, and, you know, including in this, my own case, to, you know, proceed with Title IX complaints over a professor writing an essay, which I think would have been unheard of, you know, a certain number of years ago. So in terms of all these cases, um, you know, you talk about these very extreme cases with, with regards to Title IX. Um, do you think that these cases are... Um, the new normal, or are these extreme cases uh, that highlight the potential for abuse in the system? Yeah, I don't think the cases I wrote about are the extreme cases. I think they're very much the norm. What happened was that after I wrote about my own uh, Title IX case, I wrote another article in the Chronicle called My Title IX Inquisition. So all of these people all over the country started sending me documents and you know letters about their cases. And the amount of over-prosecution and failure of due process was really incredible. So I think what I got is, you know, the tip of the iceberg because most people are afraid to talk about the cases that they've been through because the fear is that they can be brought up on further charges if they break confidentiality. So I don't think the cases I wrote about were the extremes. I do think it is the new norm. And that's why I do think there should be a lot more transparency about all this so that we do know how these uh, codes are are being enforced on campus. So what would your ideal solution for all of this be? Would you say we need sort of a step back to reconsider how the system works? Or would you prefer to have just a complete overhaul, redo it, start from scratch? I mean, I'm not so much of a policy wonk, so I'm a little hesitant to make policy recommendations. I mean, one thing I do recommend is in terms of assault training, which is mandatory for freshmen. I just think all freshmen and women should be taught 
uh, self-defense, physical self-defense. So that's that's my policy recommendation. In terms of Title IX enforcement, I think it has to be opened up, and there you know should be transparency, and there should be a uniform set of procedures. One of the things I learned is that it just varies from campus to campus, and in fact, from probably Title IX officer to Title IX officer, as to how the procedures, uh, you know, like are enacted. I mean, things like not telling people the charges against them, for example, that seems very much the norm. So I think it should be known what the procedures are, uh, you know, what's being labeled sexual harassment. So, you know, I think eye contact or something like that, you know, there should be a conversation about whether we really want to prosecute people for the wrong eye contact. So, you know, in general, I'd, I'd say start with more transparency. Mm, absolutely. Uh, so, Laura, I have one more question for you. And now this is a question that we ask all of our guests. Given that this podcast is primarily for teachers, educators, who was your favorite teacher? Uh, you know, I talk about a teacher I had, uh, I think it was it's in the introduction of the book. I, when I went to art school, I went to San Francisco Art Institute. And I had this teacher, uh, he's now dead, I'll say his name, Ray, Raymond Mondini. I think he never published anything. Uh, he taught this required course called Modern Art History. He was a Marxist Freudian, also a bodybuilder. And I mean, it was the most intellectually exciting experience of my life because I came to art school as a painter, actually, and learned all of this stuff about not just the art of the moment, which was the kind of exciting stuff about body art and performance art and conceptual art at the, at the time, but also uh, combined with all of this intellectual uh, art critic criticism, cultural criticism. It was the first place I read Susan Sontag. I mean, it just was such an exciting experience. And I actually kind of talk about that moment both in the introduction and in the coda of the book when I talk about a, in this perverse circumstance, there was a dismissal hearing of this professor that I'd written about, and there was a philosophy professor who was brought in as a character witness, and she sort of turned this dismissal hearing into a philosophy seminar to, to ask hard questions about, you know, how do we know what we know? And it actually reminded me of my student days when, you know, there was this sort of excitement about intellectual questions like that. And I thought that was, you know, a testament to, like, what is actually so great about academia is this, you know, possibility for these unexpected intellectual conversations to happen. And my fear is that those opportunities are really being diminished on campus at this moment. Well, Laura, this has been a lovely conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Such great questions. I appreciate it. Not a problem. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.